Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented brings industrial conversations that matter, serving up the most relevant conversations on industrial tech. Our vision is a world where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is product lifecycle management's momentum in manufacturing. Our guest is Jim Heppelman, CEO of PTC. In this conversation, we talk about the why and the how of product lifecycle management's momentum in manufacturing. Augmented serves an audience of executives, industry leaders, investors, founders, educators, technologists, academics, process engineers, and shop floor operators across the emerging field of frontline operation, and is hosted by Futurist Trun Arnevenheim and presented by Tulip. Jim, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, Tron. Great to be with you here this morning. Yeah, Jim, I thought we would talk a little bit about industrial automation and some specifics. But first of all, I wanted to talk a little bit about you. You grew up in Minnesota, got yourself a mechanical engineering degree, and became an entrepreneur, and uh, sold your company to PTC. You were the CTO, I guess, for a while, and now the, the CEO. It's been quite a journey. Yeah, it's fun. And by the way, uh, industrial automation and related topics is my favorite topic. I was born on a dairy farm in southeastern Minnesota, part of a very large family. It was a tough life. We never quite had enough money. So I was ambitious. I wanted to do something, you know, I wanted to have a better life than I grew up with. Not that it was bad, but maybe I wanted to have a little bit more economic security. I decided to become an engineer because I had spent a lot of time with equipment, machines, using them, but also fixing them, taking them apart, putting them back together. I was good at math and science. So I went into mechanical engineering, but right away I was drawn to software. And so I really got a kind of a major in mechanical engineering, a minor in uh, computer science, and focused on how do you use computer science to do engineering. That led me to join a computer-aided design company, a CAD company. As an intern, I was assigned to a new idea they had, which they called product data management. It was not very glamorous compared to the graphics of CAD, where you could twirl models around on the screen and so forth. So it's the kind of thing that you assign to a new intern. As an intern, I took to it. I mean, it made a lot of sense to me. So basically, that's what I specialized in in my career, especially the early part of my career. And I became quite an expert at PLM, or at the time it was called PDM. That led me ultimately, when I was exposed to the internet, to say, wow, if you really leverage web technology, you know, with a light client, a web browser, make it easy for people to engage no matter what company they're in, then you could have whole supply chains working together you know, in a very efficient way. So uh, that led me to create a company called Windchill Technology, kind of a funny name based, uh, you know, on a company in Minnesota. That's where the windchill part comes from. But PTC came to acquire this company and, uh, you know, the business just really took off at PTC. In the ensuing years, I became the chief technology officer across all of PTC. And then, as you said, that led to becoming the uh, chief executive officer a dozen years ago. It's been a great ride. It's been a lot of fun. We've accomplished a lot. The technology's come so far. Hard to imagine, you know, in the early days it would end up here, but it's been a very exciting career trajectory for sure. So, Jim, before we move into talking about product lifecycle management, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you uh, a more generic question. What is the most challenging part of being a CEO? So you've gone from being an entrepreneur to being a CEO of a much larger structure here. What's exciting? What's challenging about that? Yeah, I mean, I think what is exciting is also challenging, which is so much context switching. In a single day, I go from worrying about budgets and financial plans to meeting with happy customers, sometimes frustrated customers, to meeting with sales teams and R&D teams and R&D projects. And it's just a constant switch from one topic to another. 
which, you know, is exciting because they're all topics I like. But, you know, it puts a lot of pressure on you to kind of very quickly remember where you left this conversation off last time you were involved and, and how to dive right back in and pick it up. And I think there's some pressure that comes from that, you know, to be on your toes, ready to go as you switch from topic to topic to topic. And then, of course, you know, there's the pressure of a public company. Every 90 days we have an earnings call and uh, our investors want to hear good news. Fortunately, we've had a lot of good news, but there's always a lot of pressure to make sure you keep it going. I wanted to jump then to product lifecycle management, which, you know, it is a specialty topic. To you, it's not, right? So you've been involved with this for a while <laughs> and it's a, you know, it's a passion for you. You know, I guess in industrial automation, there are a lot of kind of three uh, letter acronyms and, and such. But if you'd give your best way to explain how this software got started, what was the original intention? I mean, this is a while back now, right? I mean, we're talking 1998, what, when this uh, software suite got created, when when she started creating this, this software? Yep. What did it do then and, and what does it do now? Well, PLM is really the system of record for product data. So if you think of salesforce.com, you know, they got started just a couple years later. They're a system of record for customer information, the, the 360 degree view of the customer. And in most companies, they have an ERP system and that's the system of record for the financial data, all the purchase orders and invoices and whatnot. And you know, might have a human resource information system, something like Workday. That's the uh, system of record for all your employees. But if you're an industrial company that makes products, uh, you have a lot of product data and where's the system you can go to to find and interact with that data in your day-to-day -day job, you know, as part of that product development or manufacturing or, or customer support process? And so PLM really has become that system of record. And for an industrial company that makes products, it's a pretty important system of record. Like a CRM system or an ERP system, you're not just collecting and managing the data, you're also transacting against it, applying change orders and uh, building configurations of it and whatnot. So PLM has become recognized in industrial companies as a critical anchor system of record. That's the way I like to think about it. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into some of it after a while, but I guess product lifecycle is something that has become, uh, has gotten much higher on the agenda for environmental reasons and other, right? So I guess if you think about a product from its ideation and, and to its uh, disposal, essentially, it's a long chain of events that is such a system theoretically could help a company with. Yeah, for sure. And uh, just to go a little deeper in that, a lot of products mm -hmm. are made of uh, mechanical parts, electronic parts, software parts. They come in lots of different configurations. They change from year to year and sometimes month to month. So there's a lot of engineers and product managers involved, and then uh, purchasing gets involved and supply chain management gets involved because very few companies build everything themselves. They work with a supply chain. Then you're bringing in the factory and production planners, and then ultimately the production process. They need this data and they need the right configurations and versions of it. Uh, then you ship the product to the customer and you provide, in many cases, service and support. And you can't do that well without understanding the configuration of the product and all the versions of mechanical, electronics, and software parts in it. Really, what we're talking about is, yeah, following that product throughout its life cycle. Sometimes I like to say, use a, a golf analogy, like the front nine and the back nine on an 18-hole course. The front nine is everything that leads up to the product being manufactured, and the back nine is everything that happens thereafter. And to really do product lifecycle management, you have to think of all 18 holes. And that's, that's kind of a focus we've had here at PTC. 
To what extent is product development kind of a management discipline? And to what extent do you feel like it's a technical discipline? I'm clearly the software here is enabling digital records, I guess, and, and, you know, tracking a product process. But product development is historically, it's not among those areas of management that have, have received the most attention, I guess, arguably. So how do you see this uh, relationship? I think it's become more and more of a management methodology over time because you start with innovation. You can't legislate innovation. You know, that sort of just happens naturally, organically, if you will. But every single product has a plan. It has a cost target. It has a, a launch date target, you know, a time to market target, if you will. It has a quality target. More and more, it might have uh, regulatory accomplishments or protocols it has to comply with. So I think that what companies are trying to do is unleash innovation, but in a managed process. A lot of companies historically have used management techniques like uh, waterfall management or stage gate. You know, more and more companies are intrigued now about could we use agile, you know, scrum management methodologies, develop hardware like we develop software because it really works well for software. Now, hardware is not software, so there's some special concerns there, but definitely there's a management methodology. And I think PLM really is uh, critical to doing that management methodology well. You can't manage a process if you don't have access to the right information. You can't even have a dashboard if you don't have the right information. But more important than the dashboard, the people participating in the process can't be expected to do the right things if they're not given the right information to work against. And that's really why PLM is so critical to managing the whole cost, quality, time to market, regulatory, and similar concerns. So why then is PLM such a hot commodity right now? Because I, I guess that's what you're arguing, that it's becoming more and more crucial. What are the kind of inflection points in, you know, since 1998? And what is it now that makes it such a crucial system? Yeah, well, I think a lot of uh, industrial companies are really leaning in to digital transformation initiatives, a huge amount of spending. And it's because uh, they see themselves potentially being disrupted or, or losing competitive advantage at a minimum if they're not sufficiently digital. And so when they lean into digital transformation, they quickly realize how much could we possibly transform a product company if we're not even managing our digital product data. So PLM quickly becomes a must-have these days in a digital transformation initiative. And then, of course, COVID has been a huge catalyst because it was hard to share information when everybody came to work every day. But if on any given day, 40, 50, 60% of your employees are working from home, how do you interact with them? You can't walk down the hall and knock on their door anymore because they're not there. And if they're there, you're not there. I think what's happened as a consequence of COVID and the hybrid workforce that you know, we're probably now left with for uh, forever, I think PLM is just absolutely critical must-have. So we've gone from nice-to-have and engineering tool to must-have enterprise tool. Let's talk about the hybrid workforce for a second. I mean, well, there were two massive predictions, right? One, you know, this will never happen in industrial companies because we're actually talking about factories and you can't be away from the factory. And then, of course, there were the future work people saying, you know, this should have happened a long time ago. There's no need for any people in factories are, you know, 24-7. There's technology. You, you don't really need, need to come in there. You said some of these changes you know, we're stuck with them forever. What does the hybrid workforce mean, you know, in an industrial organization like your own, for example, or or your largest clients? Yeah, I think if you look at a, a manufacturing company who has factories and such, you could uh, separate their workforce into uh, knowledge workers, 
These are people who are paid to think. And frontline workers, these are people who are basically paid to show up and use their hands and feet and so forth. And I think the frontline workers have to be there. And in most manufacturing companies, they are. And they've very carefully protected these workers right through COVID because if those workers don't come to work, the factory doesn't run. There are no products. But the knowledge workers, the engineers, the finance people, the procurement people, supply chain, the planners, the service and support people, they really work on a computer all day. And whether that computer's in the office or at home on the dining room table doesn't matter that much in terms of their ability to get their job done so long as they have access to the right information and an ability to participate in the process digitally. So I think we're going to see the forever state I envision here is hybrid on the knowledge worker side and uh, you know in the factory on the frontline worker side or, or sometimes at the customer site in the frontline worker side of the uh, equation. To what extent does a PLM system then actually help frontline workers? Or is it more of an enterprise system that, that helps, I guess, uh, leadership? It's an enterprise system is critical for the knowledge workers and informs the frontline workers. The knowledge workers need to participate in the process of creating and uh, evolving this information over time. You know, what's in this product we're going to launch and how will that change? We have supply chain problems. We have to find a new supplier. Okay, that's a change to the product. If we come up with new and better ideas or fix bugs, those are changes to the product. So the product information is changing and there's a lot of people interacting with it online. So PLM is the system that they interact with, and they might be in the office interacting with PLM, they might be at home. That's knowledge workers. For frontline workers, uh, when they come to the factory, they're supposed to build something today. Well, what am I supposed to build? And PLM supplies them the information. Here's the product you're working on today. Here's the configuration, the bill of material, and the work instructions to go build that product. So I'd say think of frontline workers as uh, consumers of this information, and sometimes they're given feedback because, you know, the process isn't uh, sufficiently effective. But the knowledge workers are really the ones developing and evolving this information over time. You give me some examples of how a PLM system is used by real customers. You know, what are the biggest use cases when they, I guess, when you purchase such a system and, you know, over time, what are the, the biggest kind of value drivers of, of such a system in a real organization? The main reason all companies buy PLM is cost, quality, time to market, associated with the products. A team of engineers and product managers is going to specify and engineer and simulate and iterate. And they're going to come up with some product concepts and they're going to be working with the purchasing department on who will we source these parts from. They might be working with contract manufacturers who are going to actually produce the product if we're not going to produce it ourselves. If we're going to produce it ourselves, we have to work with the manufacturing engineers and then ultimately the factory. If this is a long-lived asset, we're going to have to figure out how would we service it, what kind of spare parts are we going to need, what kind of uh, technical documentation and service work instructions would be required. So there's many, many people who have to interact with this product information before that product ever comes to life. Again, if you want to do this quickly, you know, cost quality time to market, let's take time to market. If you want to do it quickly, you need everybody working on the right information simultaneously. If you want to have quality, you got to make sure nobody's working on the wrong information because that's the source of quality problems. Somebody buys the wrong part or makes the part incorrectly, uses the wrong version of the drawing or the model or what have you. Uh, that's where quality problems come from. And then on the uh, cost, if you're trying to hit a cost target, you need to be way up front simulating if we built the product that looked like this and we bought all these parts from these suppliers 
and we assembled it like this, what would it cost to do all that? You know, all the decisions made during product development lock in cost. You don't spend so much cost, you know, so much money developing the product, but you make all the decisions that lock in costs later. If you design an expensive product, the factory is not going to make an inexpensive product. They're going to make an expensive product. People really need to collaborate. But then there's some advanced topics. So cost, quality, time to market, everybody needs that. Some people need regulatory compliance. Some people want to drive greenhouse gas emissions reduction strategies. Some people want to uh, do what I call platform strategies, where they reuse many modules and many different configurations to be efficient. And there's more. We can probably get into that. But there's a series of more advanced strategies that really go more to the competitive advantage that a company is trying to develop. In the new book from Wiley, Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operations, serial startup founder Dr. Natan Linder and futurist podcaster Dr. Trond Arne Entheim deliver an urgent and incisive exploration of when, how, and why to augment your workforce with technology and how to do it in a way that scales, maintains innovation, and allows the organization to thrive. The key thing is to prioritize humans over machines. Here's what Klaus Schwab, executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, says about the book. Augmented Lean is an important puzzle piece in the fourth industrial revolution. Find out more on www.augmentedlean.com and pick up the book in a bookstore near you. So Jim, uh, talk to me a little bit about the future outlook. So there are some very exciting prospects here for more ambitious uses of PLM software. If you are looking into the next you know, two to five years, what are some of the more advanced use cases for this kind of software? What are customers trying to do? You've been talking a little bit about regulatory requirements and, and greenhouse gas emissions. What exactly does that use case look like? Yeah. Well, let's take uh, regulatory first. Some products are launched into regulated markets. A good example would be medical devices. That whole product development process and and use thereof is regulated by the FDA or or similar agencies around the world. Or let's take aircraft. They're regulated by the FAA. Or let's take automobiles. They are regulated by a number of different standards related to safety. So, for example, there are standards around safety-critical software to make sure that some supplier doesn't make a late change to the the software they contributed to the automobile, and now suddenly your anti-lock brakes don't work anymore because they introduced a bug, right? So in each case, uh, medical device, automotive, aerospace, and there are others, what the regulators really want is traceability. They want to make sure that all of the changes that were introduced were planned and tested so that no errant change came in that produced some anomalous side effect that could kill people. And so complying with the standards of the FDA, the FAA, or or various automotive bodies, you know, is critical. And PLM is the system that gives certainty that those standards have been complied with. PLM is tracking requirements, changes, test cases to prove we have test cases for all of the changes, and all of the changes were driven by legitimate requirements. If you can prove all that, you know, the regulators are going to say, great, go ahead and launch the product. So that's kind of, I'm oversimplifying it perhaps, but that's sort of a way to think about the regulatory uh, use case. Let me pick a different one though. Many of our customers have what they call platform strategies. And sometimes I refer to this as diversity with scale. 
So let me pick a great example of a, a PTC customer, Volvo. So if you know Volvo, they make trucks, but they also make construction equipment, and they make buses, and they make uh, ship engines, boat engines. And so across those very different products, they try to reuse the same engines, the same transmissions, the same telematic systems. Why? Because of every, you know, if the truck guys develop truck engines and the bus guys develop bus engines and the boat guys develop boat engines, we'd need a lot more engine factories. And then we'd need a lot more spare parts for all these engines that last decades. So there's great inefficiency in unbridled innovation. So they actually want to control it a little bit and say, let's agree that the company will have a series of engines and no matter what bus, truck, construction equipment, or whatever you create, you should try to reuse these engines. What that means though is that the engine gets used in many different product configurations, many different buses, many different trucks, many different construction equipments. You get an explosion of configurations. In fact, just for fun, Volvo says that their products come in 10 to the 84th power hypothetical configurations. Now, very few of those configurations will ever be built, but they could be built. And so how do you manage that? Just for fun, Caterpillar uh, was meeting with me about a week ago. They were telling us about some of their challenges. And they said that their products, Caterpillar products, come in uh, infinity minus eight configurations. I laughed and said, that's a funny joke. And they said, it's not really a joke. I mean, it's not really infinity minus eight, but there are so many configurations. Now, why is that important? Let's say you're trying to produce uh, manufacturing instructions. You can't hand author infinity minus eight manufacturing or service instructions. You're going to have to generate them from building blocks. So just like the products have building blocks, the information needs to be constructed in building blocks so that if you assemble a combination of building blocks to create a piece of construction equipment, you could then assemble the information building blocks to create the manufacturing instructions for that same piece of equipment and the service instructions as well. So the configuration management of the product and all of the information building blocks, you know, has to be directly aligned and very, very sophisticated. You know, if you change that engine, you're going to have ripple on effects across many different product lines. And so I call this complexity management, sometimes uh, diversity with scale. But how does a company get the ability to create many different products but reuse the same factory and service capabilities to the degree possible? That's a big challenge for companies, but it's the difference between being competitive, high growth, high margin, and uh, not being competitive. So it's a, it's a must-have in certain industries, but very much an advanced topic. If you talk to a startup company, they would say, I don't even understand what you're talking about. But these larger companies, you know, it's absolutely critical to their financial wherewithal. So I, I want to get to green in a second. But before that, what do you say to people that would claim that, you know, industrial automation has taken a long time to get to this fairly advanced stage that you're describing here? I guess, you know, for example, for the, from the perspective of an impatient young kind of software engineer who's looking at this space, they're saying, well, you know, you guys... You're finally coming to cloud, you know, you still have some on-premise. And there are a lot of elements in, in this software. You know, you, we talked about software that's been developed since 1998. There's quite some legacy, not just in your product, but in every automation company's product. And certainly uh, your customers must have the legacy challenge as well. This is not a space where systems get changed out every six months, right? So tell me a little bit about that reality. In tech, there's a saying that goes something like this, that many breakthroughs 
have less impact in the near term than you expected, but more impact in the long term than you expected. Internet being a perfect example. You know, the first couple of years of the internet, you know, was kind of silly stuff and maybe just publishing of papers and whatnot. And today it's the way the whole world, you know, exchanges information. When I look back over my career, the technology's changed a tremendous amount. But when you look at how much is it changing this year, it looks like, well, not that much. But what happens is uh, there are a lot of new concepts, like you mentioned the cloud. But when I first worked on PLM, it was a mainframe application. Then it became a client server application. Then it became a web application. And now it's a, it's a SaaS, a cloud application. You know, these changes take time, but then they unleash whole new use cases, whole new value. And the products get better and better and frankly, less and less expensive over time. And then you get to that tipping point where it really makes sense. Maybe ERP got to that tipping point, um, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, and CRM got to that tipping point uh, 10 years ago. I think right now PLM is at that tipping point where people really see the value and the value proposition makes sense. What do I need to put in? What do I get back financially from an investment in PLM? That's starting to make a lot of sense to people. I used the phrase earlier, we've gone from nice to have to must have in the last couple of years, thanks in large part to digital transformation and then COVID. You used uh, you know, Agile and, and Scrum earlier, but even beyond those techniques, right? there's a demand in the industry for software that can be very easily configured by non-specialists. So here we're, we're talking about perhaps low-code software in and of itself, or at least that the user interfaces are easy to operate. And, and I guess you can understand that because the training challenge, for example, in manufacturing, and you, you know, you were referring to frontline workers, well, the training factor there is, is significant, but also conversely on the knowledge worker side, you know, to use your definition here and distinction between the two, even engineers have had to contend with a lot of new frameworks and they were not trained on the kind of software that you're talking about here, right? Many of them were industrial engineers and, uh, still actually don't receive an enormous amount of, you know, IT programming in, in their curriculum. There's so much other things to, to focus on. So what do you see there in terms of the low-code space or in, in terms of the interfaces? Are, is industrial automation also gradually simplifying, or are we on this enormous train towards more complexity in, in, in all the chain? Well, I think uh, what's happening is the systems are becoming more sophisticated behind the curtain, but then we're providing different user communities with role-based views into that information. If you think about a product manager, an engineer, somebody in purchasing, somebody on the factory floor, somebody in the service bay, they all need product information, but their needs are quite different. And then when you go from one company to the next, they might be different again because the companies are different, the products are different. So yeah, definitely low-code approaches. For example, we have a product called Navigate, which is kind of a low-code overlay onto the basic PLM system. A low-code approach that allows you to tailor what different user communities experience when they log in, I do think is very important. Because if I'm in purchasing, show me what a purchasing person needs to know and no more. If I'm on the factory floor, I don't need to know what things cost. I just need to know what the work instructions are. So show me just a limited view that hides all the rest of that complexity. Certainly there are some power users who need a lot more, but there's a lot of uh, users who really need kind of almost uh, looking at the information through a straw, if you will. There's a fairly limited amount of information and functionality that's relevant to them. How can we serve that up to them in the simplest possible way? 
I do think that's critical. It needs to be tailorable in order to work well. The introduction of low-code approaches into PLM has um, certainly helped with the broader adoption you know, to go beyond the engineering department and really make it an enterprise system. It's been a critical enabler. I, I want to benefit from some of your experience to think about, you know, what's going to happen next in the broader field of industrial automation. But perhaps we can you can kick it off with a little bit more detail on how you see the green challenge working out. Because clearly, as, you know, more and more industries are starting to take the climate challenge or just even bits and pieces of it, like you were talking about earlier, the product lifecycle tracking of a product, worrying also more about the end state of their products. What are systems then having to adapt to? Let me say first, you know, some companies see climate change and greenhouse gas reduction as an opportunity. And there's a lot of green tech companies launching, you know, startup companies launching to produce next generation products. On the other hand, there's a lot of larger companies that are under tremendous investor pressure to be more green. Uh, you know, if you're a public company right now, you really have to be active on the environmental social governance ESG front. You have to have a story. And it can't just be a story. There has to be some reality behind it. So what's happening now is companies are saying, okay, well, where does greenhouse gas come from? And by the way, who really is a great producer of greenhouse gas? And it turns out manufacturing companies actually have fairly substantial greenhouse gas footprints. The production of their products in their factories and the production of all the materials and you know, raw materials and whatnot has a lot of energy use associated with it. And then some of these products go on to be used by the customers in a way that also consumes a lot of energy use. So manufacturing companies are saying, well, if I wanted to reduce greenhouse gas emission, I really have to back up and think about the products I make and how could I make them with less greenhouse gas footprint but how could I also design them so that when operated, they generate less greenhouse gas footprint? But all this stuff starts in engineering. People in factories don't get to make changes. They have to be specified by the engineering department. So just like the engineering decisions lock in cost, frankly, they lock in greenhouse gas footprint. And the important thing is to bring awareness and analytics upstream so that when an engineer is thinking about how to innovate and solve a particular problem, they say, well, this approach would have a high greenhouse gas contribution, and this alternative approach would have a very low greenhouse gas approach. Let's go with this uh, secondary approach for reasons of uh, reducing our greenhouse gas footprint. Again, if you really want to move the needle in a manufacturing company, you can't get far if you don't open the hood and look at the products. And the system you log in to do that is called PLM. And so PLM will be uh, manufacturing company's best friend as they think about over time how to consistently reduce their greenhouse gas footprint and actually track the progress they're making, you know, so that they can publish to their shareholders and whatnot the incremental progress and in, in how well are they advancing toward their goals. Well, Jim, what you're talking about now clearly is a big part of the future in the sense that this, you know, it sounds so simple when you're explaining it, but, you know, measuring that obviously is not something the software in and of itself can help a company within in every part of it, right? I'm assuming, you know, this means a lot of rethinking inside of these industrial companies. But if I want to benefit more from sort of your broader view on the industry, what are some of the other things that you think in a longer time frame 
are happening in the industrial space? I mean, are we looking at more and more innovation from startups? Like, you you know, you came yourself from a startup. How do you see the startup innovation in this space versus sort of the giants that ETC now has become more of a giant? But, you know, obviously, like every company, you started out uh, in a, you know, in a different position. You know, what are some of the technologies that you're excited about that's going to really change this space as we move into the next decade? Let's back up and talk a little bit more about cloud and SaaS. Because uh, if you look at the PLM industry, it's very much an on-premise industry. You mentioned this earlier. If you look then at business software in general, this is an important year because this year, more of the entire ecosystem of business software is delivered as a SaaS model than an on-premise model. This is the first year where there's more SaaS in total than on-premise. But within our little corner of the world called PLM, that's not true at all. We're very much an on-premise market. But customers would have great benefit if we could deliver this to them in, you know, via the cloud as a service rather than uh, ship them software or let them download software to be more practical. We think at PTC, this industry is going to the cloud. The automotive industry is going to electrification and the PLM industries go into SaaS. It's really that simple. Is it happening today, right now? I don't know. I still drive a combustion engine automobile, but I know at some point, I'm going to be driving an electric vehicle. And Tron, you're in California. I mean, they just passed a law there that said by 2035, you can't even buy a combustion automobile. So I know you're going to be going to electric if you, uh, if you want to own a car. Again, I'm making an analogy. What's happening in the automotive industry as it relates to electrification is what's happening in the PLM industry as it relates to SaaS. The industry is in transition. There will be winners and losers in this transition. PTC has tried to position itself to be a winner by being out front paving the way and you know bringing the industry along with us. So I think that's a pretty profound change that's coming and it brings uh, tremendous benefits, cost of ownership, simplification, real-time collaboration up and down a supply chain, you know, and uh, and many others. Do you have any advice to would-be entrepreneurs in the industrial space? It's interesting at least to me that yes, you know, we have Tesla now and and a few others, but kind of the poster child examples of uh, startups is usually not an industrial company, right? Well, there's certainly many, many more of these success stories that seem to come out of the garage type uh, thing that is perhaps not hardware and certainly not industrial. What is your view of that? My advice there is to focus on what's most important, and that is developing your innovation and getting into market. I'm talking about innovations that involve physical products, but frequently in the startup world, there's lots and lots of electronics and software involved uh, these days as well. But we have several products like our Onshape CAD product and our Arena PLM product that are pure SaaS. They have never existed in a shippable form and never will. They're extremely popular with startup companies because a startup company says, I don't have time to uh, hire IT people and set up uh, software systems in my company. I'm trying to get this innovation to market, and I need things like CAD and PLM. I just don't need to own them. I need to use them. And so uh, products like Onshape and Arena really are popular with startup companies. And plus, in a very unique way, they enable agile product development. And again, when I say agile product development, I mean develop hardware like you develop software. You might remember I said, historically, hardware has been developed with a stage gate or waterfall model. Software used to be that way, but software has gone to an agile, almost exclusively gone to agile product development, scrum type methodologies. Could we bring those scrum methodologies back over to the hardware and develop hardware and software the same way? 
Yeah, that's very, very interesting to uh, startup companies because it's all about speed. But it's pretty hard to do without SaaS because if you're going to all work on the same data and make new versions of the product every single day, well, then we need to have the data remain collected together. We can't have it distributed out on a whole bunch of desktop computers or it just doesn't work. So I think that startup companies need to focus on what's important. The SaaS model and the ability of the SaaS model to enable an agile scrum approach is absolutely critical to these uh, startup you know, companies, the entrepreneurs that are driving them. It's exciting, your idea here of developing software, I mean, developing hardware at the speed, I guess, and uh, with the methodology of software. Can you tell me more about what that actually would mean? What sort of differences uh, are we talking about? I mean, for example, in terms of how quickly hardware would evolve or how well it would integrate with other systems. Yeah, the, some of the most important principles of Agile or Scrum product development are uh, daily builds a highly iterative approach that's not too deterministic up front. In a waterfall method, by contrast, the first thing you do is determine the customer requirements because that's what's going to guide your whole project. In an agile world, you say, I'm not sure the customer even knows. I'm inventing something new. The customer doesn't even know what I'm doing, but I'll need to show it to them and they'll be able to react when I show it to them. But I want to show it to them every week or maybe even every day. I want to be able to interact either with the customer or with the product owner, which is a, a person who's been designated to represent the interest of the customer. And I want to, every single day, be able to show the progress we've made and test it. The thing that really burns people in a traditional waterfall process is uh, you're given a set of requirements, you develop a perfect solution. Six months later, you show the perfect solution to the customer and they say, that's not what I meant. I know I said that, and you're complying with the words. You're not complying with the intent because the words didn't quite accurately capture the intent. So in this waterfall process, you lose tremendous amounts of time sometimes by going back and starting over. In the Agile project, you're showing them the digital models of the product every day or perhaps every week or even every month if it makes more sense. But you're showing the customer your progress, and you're getting continuous feedback. And so you're evolving towards an ideal solution very, very quickly. Again, agile software developers have been doing this forever, but we haven't been doing it on the product side, the hardware side, because the tools really weren't set up for that. When software engineers adopted agile, they adopted a different set of tools. As hardware engineers are adopting agile, they're also saying we would need a different set of tools. They'd have to be cloud-based, SaaS-based, so that we were always working on the same data and we always had the latest version of everybody's contribution right there at our fingertips as opposed to, say, checked out and on their laptop and they're on vacation this week. So, you know, it's an interesting time in the industry, and I think there's a real breakthrough coming, you know, which will be enabled by SaaS. Is it frustrating sometimes that there's also, I mean, you've been talking now about the inspiration from the software side and innovation side, perhaps over to the hardware side and more the industrial side, but isn't it frustrating sometimes that there is obviously a lot of history and experience on the industrial sort of hardware side and you kind of have to teach new generations that some of these things are they don't operate as quickly so you know yes we can bring some methodologies there but there are some constants i guess around infrastructure and factories that are a little bit harder to change so as much as we would want all of it to be developed at the speed of software, there are some additional complexities. How do you think about that as, you know, you're running an industrial automation company. There is some value on the other side of this coin, you know, explaining 
Uh, and, and perhaps, you know, working together to, to smooth out the, the, the fact that we're dealing with a material reality here in most factories. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is frustrating, but it's also what leads to the next generation of companies. Older companies may be entrenched in their working methods and resistant to change. Some little startup company comes along, they're not resistant at all. They're blank sheet of paper. They can do whatever they want. They have no inertia, if you will, no organizational inertia. So they're very, very flexible. And these new companies not only have innovative new ideas, they have innovative new approaches and innovative new processes and innovative new tools. You know, like when we think of all these uh, clean tech companies, startup companies developing, uh, you know, electric vertical takeoff and landing uh, aircraft, for example, um, a company I'm thinking of there is Beta Air, or uh, they're maybe producing uh, electric batteries like a, a customer we have called Zing Mobile or ChargePoint producing chargers for Teslas and other electric automobiles. These companies are saying, I don't have time to buy systems. I don't have time to build factories. What I want to do is bring smart people together, use tools that are already running in the cloud, come up with innovative new ideas, and pass them on to contract manufacturers. And I'll have a product in the market with very little capital and very little time. Later, I'll think about how to scale it up to be something much, much bigger. But for example, the use of contract manufacturers is a huge breakthrough. It means that you don't have to go build a factory before you can build a product. You just set up a relationship with somebody who already has the factory and knows perfectly well how to build such a product. It's just your ideas in their factory. And so these kind of disruptive approaches you know, are very, very interesting. It causes pressure on the old companies to say, are we really just going to stand here and let them do this to us? Or should we open our mind a little bit and be more flexible to change? Fascinating, Jim. It's certainly, it's a world with uh, a lot of moving parts, the industrial one, right? So uh, I thank you so much for this discussion. Is there anything you want to leave the listener with in terms of how they should, should uh, view product lifecycle management uh, as it's uh, kind of moving into the next generation? Let me offer up uh, one last idea, kind of a big idea, and that is the role of the metaverse will play in the industrial world. You know, when we think of metaverse today, we generally think of gaming or social media. And they're kind of cheesy metaverse ideas. You know, you can go play a game online in some artificial universe, and it's maybe fun, but it's not meaningful. But what we think we can do, what PTC is working on, is how can we take a setting that's real, could be a factory, could be a customer site, and how could we very quickly virtualize it into a metaverse so that we can then, from a remote place, enter that metaverse and interact with the people in it, the real people in it who have been virtualized, but also the equipment and machinery. You know, how can I go debug a problem in a factory by quickly turning the factory into a metaverse and joining the metaverse? How could I go solve a customer product problem by turning that customer site into a metaverse and joining them there? I mean, I think there's some really interesting ideas that PDC has been working on there. And again, it's not metaverse for gaming and entertainment. It's metaverse for industrial productivity. That's going to be a big thing. You know, we're way ahead of the market there. But, you know, wait five or 10 years. Everybody's going to be talking about this. So the industrial metaverse, Jim, that's, uh, that's going to be a real place. It's going to be a real place. Let me add, we call it a pop-up metaverse because there's so many places in the world I don't need to virtualize them all because most of them I don't care about. But if I build a, a, a certain type of machinery and I ship it to a customer and it breaks down at the customer site 
and I need to service it using product data, well, I can buy an airplane ticket and rental car and I can go to the customer site and I'll be there in three days. Or I could ask the customer to whip out their smartphone, convert that situation into a pop-up metaverse and let me join into it. You know, five minutes later, I'm virtually standing next to the customer observing the problem and suggesting what they should do to try to correct it. It's a big, profound idea. I'm super excited about, you know, what it could do for us. Well, that's fascinating. I certainly think that the industrial metaverse sounds a lot more useful and perhaps even more exciting than the consumer versions of the metaverse that I've seen so far. Yeah, I totally agree with you. All right, Jim, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thanks for sharing this and and taking the time. I hope you have a wonderful day and uh, thank you for your time. Yeah, great, Tron. Thank you very much. Uh, PLM's obviously uh, an exciting industry to me. You can probably sense that in my uh, in my voice. It's a, a world that's really coming to light right now. A lot of growth, a lot of excitement with customers, a lot of big ideas, and I'm happy to have an opportunity to share them with you today. You have just listened to another episode of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. Our guest was Jim Heppelman, CEO of PTC. In this conversation, we talked about product lifecycle management's momentum in manufacturing. My takeaway is that the momentum is clear, and one indication is the trend that PLM is being elevated to an enterprise system. But why is PLM such a hot market right now? One keyword is greenhouse gas reduction, because companies need a system of record to track their emissions, and this is not easy to do without a system in place. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 93, Industry 4.0 Tools. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes. And if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Augmented is presented by Tulip.co. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring, and you can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where the industry and especially where industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.